All right, if you will find your way to Esther chapter 5, we'll be there in a moment. There's a couple of things that I want to share with you first. Let me get all my stuff together. I want to thank all of you that were able to come yesterday and, and help at uh, Help Group Day. I think we ended up with close to 300, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with all that we gave out. It was a beautiful day on the parking lot, and uh, I appreciate, um, I won't embarrass the young lady, but we had one of our sweet teenagers, young girl just out there helping, trying to be kind to people, and she was just, for lack of a better term, uh, verbally attacked by one of the people because we weren't there last month, and she was just taking it out on this sweet young girl, and she was, all she was doing was trying to lovingly uh, help her get food, and I said, what we needed to do was find Chris Ellison and let him handle this particular uh, situation with you know just trying to love on people and sometimes they don't uh, and that's just a sweet little girl just love Jesus and I think her mom got wind of it and you know how mommies are they uh, going to protect their young and some went over and I think it, it, it did all get handled but it was just sad that, that but I, I just love one of the things God keeps reminding me is how special uh, young people and children are as you watch them grow up and, and love the Lord and realize that, just like Jesus said, that uh, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that the church is going to be all right after I'm gone. I know that I've been thinking, that's it, we, we have no hope, and once I'm gone, it's all over, but guess what? I think we're going to be okay. I think uh, Jesus will handle it. Uh, he's always had a witness, and he will continue to have one and, uh, until he comes back. And it's just exciting to, to see that, uh, uh, particularly watch young people who, who love the Lord and want to uh, just share that. It, it's uh, very thrilling to me. And we've got a, we've got a bunch of good ones, uh, children and students. So, again, thank you for all of you that are able to come and help with that. Also, when you came in today... And at home, I'll tell you now to get ready. We're going to take communion together at the end of the service today, take the Lord's Supper. So if you didn't get one when you came in, there's some in, in the back of the auditorium. Chad's got them back there if you just want to get back, walk back there anytime in the middle of the sermon. And don't pretend you're walking back there and then leave. I'll start crying and then it'll all be over with. So if you didn't get your communion elements, uh, Chad's got, it'll take you the rest of the sermon to open them anyway. So they're hermetically sealed. We keep them that way so nothing can happen to them. For those of you that are as old as me, you remember they were medically sealed and been in, a, in Funkin' Wagnall's uh, porch, but I'll let you figure out what that means. All right, so if you're at home, you get your potato chips and water or iced tea, whatever you're using, your coffee and a donut, whatever you're going to use but for your elements, but we're going to share the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service today. A couple other things I do want to mention to you. Friday, April 2nd week from Friday, this coming Friday, we're going to have a communion service. Both campuses are going to come together at the Bartlett campus. It's in your bulletin, the, the details of the time. I'm pretty sure it's 6 o'clock. But Friday, April 2nd, at the Bartlett campus, we're going to be, all come together and, and share the Lord's Supper there together 
Good Friday. Now, let me uh, just one little note about Easter. Easter is two weeks from today. Normally, last year obviously was not normal. We did it virtually. Uh, This year, clearly we're going to have Easter here in the building. So whether you're at home or you're here today, uh, my prayer is we can all come together. Easter Sunday, we're only going to have one service. Traditionally, we've had to have two because of the parking lot and a little tight in here. But this year, we're just going to have one service here in the auditorium, and we should have plenty of room to even be able to to social distance to do all that we need to do. So I'm encouraging you, if you're at home and you haven't felt comfortable coming back to church yet, Easter Sunday would be a great time to do that. We can all come together and just love on one another and celebrate the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I'd ask you to do me one favor. So if you're at home, wake up and look. If you plan on coming or here in the building... All, when we come, don't come in every car that you own. For example, if you're the Nance family, don't come in five cars. You, you guys need to walk here. Uh, what I'll probably do is, is have Mary just drop me off, and hopefully by then our prayer is that, she, that she'll be ready. And if she is, then she can drop me off, and, and she can go park, but... Uh, if you get here and it looks real crowded, park at the bank across the street. They're not going to be open on Easter Sunday, and that's what we used to do anyway. For those of us that are in leadership or get here early, maybe maybe park across the street at the Hannah Buildings. We won't be using it uh, that Sunday, but we should be okay. But just just to mention that, if everybody comes to two or three cars, we might not be. Uh, my prayer is that we're not. Uh, my prayer is the parking lot is full, and and we got to go drive down to Kroger and run a shuttle bus. That'd be great, uh, but. Just that one note. So when is Easter? Two weeks from today. We'll be celebrating our risen Lord Jesus Christ together. That'll be kind of exciting. All right. If you haven't turned to Esther already, do that. Esther chapter 5. And if you'll notice, what we're going to be looking at in this particular section, Esther 5 and 6, is the favor of God versus the resistance of God. And Haman is going to be invited to a banquet. By, give, give, actually, two banquets given by Esther. So what I want you to think about is being invited to dinner by someone. And sometimes you don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll give you a simple example. It was a family that invited uh, the pastor and his wife to come home and eat dinner with them. So they're sitting around the table, and they're getting ready to eat, and uh, they asked their little boy to set the table. So he set the table and he gave everybody a knife and a fork except the pastor's wife. She didn't get a knife and a fork. Everyone else did. And so mom turned to the little boy and said, Joey, why didn't you give uh, Miss Mary, the pastor's wife, why, why didn't you give the pastor's wife a knife and a fork? She said, because dad says she eats like a horse. So possibly been there. And there was another story that I read, just very hits home. So they invited the pastor to come over for dinner. It's a different family. This is, I think this was Darren's family when Landon was at home. Well, they invited the pastor over for, for lunch after church. And so they're all sitting around and, and um, the pastor said, uh, what are we having for lunch today? And the little boy said, Landon said, we're having goat. I said, goat? He said, yeah, Dad said, this is as good a Sunday as any to have the old goat over. 
think Landon was like that, but apparently he was. So when someone invites you to dinner, you should be careful. Haman was not, and we're going to see God going to get his attention. What we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is the idea of being humble before God. You'll notice the play on words there on your outline. Being humbled before God or having God humble you. Being humbled by God or being humbled before God. And this series that we're looking at is what time is it and it's our time. We've talked about that. You'll notice that we're going to repeatedly look at this verse or quote this verse as we go through from James chapter 4 verse 6 where it's in quoting from the Old Testament. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you look closely at the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and you examine leadership in Scripture, the one thing that jumps out at you, the one thing that God is looking for in the lives of believers, specifically if you're going to be in leadership, but believers in general, the one thing that God is looking for and truly is an indication that you are Christ-like is God is looking for humility. Jesus only claimed that one character attribute. You read through the entire gospel. It's the only thing you will ever hear him say about me personally. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And they both mean the same thing. I'm humble. If you study through, Jesus made it clear, I am a servant. I came to serve and to die. I, he was the, we studied the Gospel of Mark, the title of that. He was a suffering servant. That's who he was. That's why he came. And that's who we are to be. We are to be servants of God and servants of man. That's what a Christian is. We are all believer priests. We all represent God to people and we take people to God. For example, when you pray for someone, intercessory prayer in Mary and I, we've been talking about it again this week and we're sharing with some other people the incredible prayer life we've noticed in our church just toward my sweet wife and all that she's been going through back since last fall. When you pray for someone, when you, when you take them before God, that's intercessory prayer. You're, you're operating as a believer. You're taking them before the throne of God. Same thing is, is when you share God with people. You are, as a priest, sharing with them the God that you serve. Jesus is our great high priest. It's the entire message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the great high priest. We consider him. We surrender to him. And then we share him. We're priests. At the end of today's service, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. And you're doing two basic things when you take the Lord's Supper. You are to remember the Lord's death till he returns. The church age. We are to remember and what's the other thing we are to do? We are to go out and proclaim his death till he comes. We remember and we proclaim. That's what priests do. We share truth so that people's lives can be changed. So when you get to Esther chapter 5 and verse 6, is we need to understand what God is going to teach us from a principle. Remember that the theme of the book of Esther is that you don't see the name of God one time. What you see is the hand of God. Always at work, always living up to his promises, preserving his people because he said that he would bring the Messiah through them. And so even though it looks like they're going to be annihilated by Haman, God is going to preserve them. You see his hand. So one of the things that the the idea is providence, divine providence, an old English word, an old term that you don't hear much anymore. And it simply means God provides. We saw last week that the the key verse in in the whole book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14, 
when, when Mordecai says to Esther, maybe it's, you've been brought to the kingdom for this time. Because if you choose not to go before Xerxes and plead for the people, God will provide in some other way. And the point is, is God going to provide? The answer is yes. God lives up to what he says. The answer is yes. And am I going to allow me to be part of what he's doing? And remembering it this way, we talk about our time, it's your time. Now is my time and your time. Historically, God has redeemed us and placed us in the middle of the United States of America for this moment in time. Corporately, it's the church of Jesus Christ, local church, it's Christ church, and individually believers, every place you go and everybody that you interact with on a daily basis. God is sovereign over that, knew about it before he created the universe, and it's your time. Is it a time you always like? Let me be the first to say, no. There are times that it's difficult. And it's a struggle. For some of you, I I know in a physical, emotional, and even spiritual way, it was hard to get up and come to church today. And every day there's a challenge of some kind. And if you're not being challenged right now, guess what? You will be. You will be. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. One of the things that God always says, he doesn't waste a hurt. So what you're going through now, God says, I am working good, even though you don't like it, you don't understand it, and you sure don't see good in the moment. You probably will down the road. May not see it till eternity. But what I've discovered in my life, and the older I get, I see it over and over again, is that when I go through a hurt, in some way God uses that hurt so that I can benefit someone else down the road by sharing. Whatever that hurt might be, God is doing something always. And that's the message of the book of Esther. So as Christians, and I know we use the term, we throw it around all the time, as Christians, we don't believe in luck. What do we believe in? We believe in providence. We believe that we trust God. The theme of the entire Bible, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's a channel of trust in the God who's proven himself to be trustworthy. For example, if I wanted to do my taxes myself, which I did this year, I told Mary, I said, let's let's just replicate last year and see what happens. Because she didn't, my wife is, had been in, she understands accounting and loves all that. It's done them forever and, and. She understands it. She didn't, I said, look, just show me what to write down, where to put it. But if I really want it done right, I'm going to go to somebody like Rhett, who's a CPA. Why? Because he understands it. I don't. I understand there's debits and credits, and that's about it. When I started the University of Memphis in 1972, I was going to major in accounting because my wife's in accounting, and I thought, well, this is, she was an auditor for Sears, and I thought, well, that'll be, I'll do that. I took two courses. Whew, I made it through whatever they call the first two. And then we got to this thing called cost accounting. Now, I'm a fairly intelligent human being. Had a 4.0 average in high school, made 30, or close to 30 on the ACT. I don't even remember what I made, but it was somewhere in the high 20s. And I got a full scholarship to college. Man, when we got to cost accounting, I was dumber than a brick. I could not, I'd go home and I'd say, Mary, what does this mean? She would try to explain it to me and show me and walk me through it. I couldn't get it. You know what I decided that day? I ain't majoring in accounting. 
because I don't even understand it. So what I did in my wisdom was I had a scholarship that ran out in eight semesters, and I was in my third semester, and I said, you know, I'm going to stay in the business school, but i got to find something where all you do is talk. Because I found out yesterday, Rhett reminded me, the only thing you're worth is to talk. So I ended up majoring in the hardest major you can take in the school of business, which is economics. You know why? Because in economics, all you do is just talk. It's all theory. It's all talk. If you don't believe me, just watch. When people say, when they start talking about the stock market, they start talking about why it's doing it, you'll get a different, you get five guys, you're going to get five different opinions. You know why? That's all it is. It's just talk. I said, I can do that. So I got my degree in economics. Have I ever used it? Not that I know of. I don't even know what it means, but I got it got me my first job, so I guess that's really all that matters. But here's the point. I don't believe Christians, we don't believe in luck. We trust our God because He knows what? Everything. He even understands cost, he even understands cost accounting. I don't. He does. Do I know the future? No. Who does? My daddy, Abba Father. So I crawl up in his arms and say, Daddy, show me where you want me to go. I'm going to trust you. Even though I don't think we ought to go that way. You ever tell your parents that they were wrong when you were a kid? If you were a teenager, you did. You ever met, if you ever made it to adolescence and teenage years, they were wrong all the time. Suddenly from about age 10, about you hit about age 13, they don't know anything. And now, I guess now it's getting even younger. They don't know anything. You got to help them. My daughter's over. I got a new phone last week. I had to get both my son and my daughter to get it where I could use it. And the first time I got my nine-year-old granddaughter had to show me how to turn it on and get rid of windows and things that kept popping up. My nine-year-old granddaughter had to show me. But now I'm a semi-expert. They had to teach me. I never done that. I just had before I got my first uh, iPhone. I just had a flip phone. You just flipped it up and you called somebody if you wanted to. Now I realize you can do pretty, some pretty cool things with it. They had to teach me. What does my God know? Everything. And the other thing, beauty about understanding providence is this. Not only does he know everything, he's always doing what on my behalf? What's best and what's good. Because I might come to a point where I got two decisions and they both might be really good decisions. And I don't know which one to take. But what I want to take is the one that God wants me to take. Why? Even though the other one would be good. Because if I take the one God wants me to take, I know I'm taking which one? The best one. The best one. There is example after example of that in Scripture. Back to Esther. So one of the application, what we're going to get as we look at chapters 5 and 6 out of it, for us to use and go out in our lives, is that we believe in the providence of God. That God uses the circumstances that we are in, even if they are difficult. And sometimes they are very difficult. God uses those for something that he is going to do for his divine purposes. That's providence. That somehow he's going to use that difficult circumstance that I am in, that I am in currently to bless, benefit others, and something for the kingdom down the road, even though I don't know that or understand it. The other principle is, I can't see God, but I know what? He's always there. The great example Jesus used, Nicodemus asked him, and he said, 
must be born again, and you read that whole dialogue, and Jesus used the illustration that you can't see the wind, but what do you see? You see where it blows? You see what it does? The evidence that it's been there, that God is always there. We trust the promises of God. Tony Evans is a, a pastor in Dallas that I read a lot and listen to, and, and, and I met him years ago, gosh, 35 years ago now. A tremendous man of God. And he says this, in those times when God doesn't want to be out front and work in the spectacular, obvious ways, he will work behind the scenes to orchestrate what, what appear to be chance happenings, coincidences, or just good or bad luck on the part of the people involved. Esther chapters 5 and 6 are loaded with these seeming coincidences, which I want, which I want to help us recognize for what they are, God's work behind the scenes, end quote. That God is always at work to do what's best for his people, corporately and individually. All right, Esther chapter 5, let's set the context and then get into it. Esther chapter 5. The context, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king, Xerxes, sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So context, nearing the end of the fast that Esther had called for, the three-day fast. If you look back in chapter 4, you can see that in verse 16. She called for a three-day fast because it was sharing what was going to happen, that Haman was going to wipe out all the Jews. So she called for all the Jews to fast for three days. At the end of that time, she was going to go before Xerxes, and she said that great statement, if I perish, I perish. That's where we were last week. So now chapter 5 opens, and that's where it is. It's, it's the end of the three-day fast. She's about to approach Xerxes, desperately needing him to show her favor. We've seen that word before. To show her favor like he's done before. At this moment in time that she's put on her royal robes as the queen of Persia. But because she's Jewish and because she's not been called before the king in 30 days. You never go before the king. That's what we were talking about last week. You never went before the emperor Xerxes unless you were summoned. You didn't just show up and say, hey, I'm here. Even though you were the queen, you didn't do that. And as a matter of fact, if you did, it could be a death sentence. So as Esther stands, you get the picture. He's on the throne at one end of the palace. She's in the front door. She's dressed as the queen. Basically, she's standing there going, without saying anything, can I come in? And in her heart and in her mind and in her soul, this is where we were last week, what is she really expecting to happen? She's probably going to walk in there and be sentenced to death for two reasons. Number one, she hasn't been summoned. And number two, she's what? She's Jewish. And Xerxes has signed a decree that every Jew in his kingdom is to be wiped out because that's what Haman wants and that's what he got Xerxes to sign. So she's expecting to die. She's terrified. And all the Jews are waiting to hear because she's told them, I'm going to do this. If I perish, I perish. And they're waiting to hear what's happened. Esther's life has dramatically changed. From the queen had everything going well, beautiful queen of Persia. 
to having a death sentence on her life and about in her mind to die for choosing to do the right thing. By the way, that flies in the face of what a lot of people preach today. If you choose to do the right thing, it doesn't always turn out the way you want it to, but it always turns out the way God has planned for you. He is in control. So the Jews are praying. They've been fasting. They're humbling themselves, hopefully, before God. That's the picture you're going to see, the dichotomy here. Being humbled before God versus Haman, who's about to be humbled by that God as he comes to these banquets. So you see the verse there on your outline again from James. God resists the proud, but what does he do for the humble? He gives them grace. He gives them grace. Haman, at this point in time, looks unbeatable. I mentioned again last week. He's the prime minister. He's got everything set up. He's the number two guy in Persia, which makes him the number two man in the world. And he's about to get everything. He's revenge for the Amalekites and Agag going all the way back on the Jews whom he hates. He's got it all going on for him. And his ego is off the charts. I am the man. Nobody except Xerxes can tell me what to do. And Xerxes just does what I tell him to do. I'm the man. He's about to be humbled by God. Circumstances look horrific for the Jews. That Haman is going to finally win. But when everything looks like God is at a loss, unpredictable, what do you always know about God? Is that he's God. And there is no other. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. He's God. All right, let's look at chapter 5, and let's look at number 1 in your handout, the favor of Esther. Esther's favor. Verse 1. It's gracious. It happened on the third day. She put on her royal robe. She stood in the inner court. Thoughts about that, verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing, verse 2, in the court. She found favor in his sight, Xerxes. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and she touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom, exclamation point. The fate of the Jews is in her hand. The book is shifting at this point. Mordecai is no longer in charge of the Jews. Who is? Esther is. She is the hope for the Jews. She's standing before Xerxes. She doesn't rush into the inner court. She's gracious. She stands there. She doesn't rush in demanding to see the king. I'm the queen. She doesn't threaten anybody. She just gently stands there and waits. And Esther extends to her the golden scepter. He doesn't see her motivation isn't, isn't revenge. It isn't blood like Haman. She's simply going to use reason, logic, and see if the king will trust her. She put on a royal robe. She stood in the inner court while he's sitting on the throne. She's the queen, but he's the king. And she's showing that deference that he would expect. And this is the moment of truth. She said, if I perish, I perish. Then verse 2, you see Xerxes' response. It says you found favor. The Hebrew word favor is translated the Greek, the Septuagint, and translated in Greek, the word means grace. Haman, excuse me, Xerxes shows Esther grace. 
You see the hand of God working behind the scenes. He holds out to her the golden scepter. What this literally mean, meant was when he extends the golden scepter, he's saying to you, you're accepted. You're pardoned. When she comes and identifies by placing her hand on top of the golden scepter, she's identifying with him showing her grace and favor, acceptance of that. It's a real picture of how we accept pardon and we are identified with Jesus Christ when we're born again. The Bible talks about the idea of identification. That's what the, the word baptism is part of that. that spiritually identifying with who Jesus was and that we are in Christ. And, and Paul talks about when you become a Christian, you identify by putting on the robes of righteousness. It's an Old Testament metaphor for covenant. If you remember the story of David and Jonathan, they were covenant partners. When they became covenant partners, they exchanged robes. So when David gave Jonathan his robe and, and Jonathan gave David his robe, you then identify with the other person. Your enemies become my enemies. Your desires become mine. Your, your needs become mine. I, I, we identify. That's what it means to be a Christian. I enter into Christ. Christ enters into me. I am born again. I am a Christian and I identify. God declares me righteous, not because I'm good, not because I do a lot of great things. He does, it, there's, there are none righteous, no, not one. All our righteousness is just filthy rags. So how can God call me righteous? Because I am in Christ. I mentioned this to you many times and just a great Bible study to do if you ever have the time. Go through the writings of Paul. Nobody else, just Paul. There's a, there's a few of those to go through. Go through the writings of Paul and look for the phrase in Christ or Christ in me. And I do everything on the legal pad because that's what the Apostle Paul would have used, yellow legal pad, and make you a list. Just put bullet points, put Christ in me or in Christ at the top of the page, and then put little bullet points underneath. Paul said this about me. If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. Wow, I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. Wow, all things have become new. That's three bullet points from one verse. One verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17. One of the first verses that really taught me about uh, years when I was a teenager in high school, I learned that verse. Someone taught it to me about what it meant to grow. You've got to realize who you are. When you get saved, when you're born again, you're not just a religious person or a church person. You're a new creation. You get brand new eyes. You don't see things the same anymore. That's just one example. It's a great study that, that I'm in Christ. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. Woo, look at this inheritance I got because I'm in Christ. On and on and on. And then step back and read it get a big picture with some detail of who you are and be excited about that. One of the things that drives me crazy as a believer and maybe as a pastor, but really just as a believer, and I guess part of it is my personality is I love to talk about the Lord. I love to talk about it. If someone thinks that it's all stupid and I'm an ignorant uh, religious nut, that's fine. I'm cool with that. Tell me why you think that. Because I think you're, you're in trouble without Jesus. So let's talk about it. I should be excited about being a Christian. Not embarrassed. And I have. There have been points in my life where I was embarrassed and I didn't want to talk about it. Why? When the greatest thing that ever happened to you, and I've been married and I've been married 48 years this year. 48 years. And I'm, we were looking at some pictures from like when... She, uh, we were in high school and, and early college years, and 
And how pretty, she's still pretty. Did y'all hear that? How pretty she was as a 16, 17, 18, 20-year-old. And and then look at me and like, why did she marry me? She could have married a lot of people. Just the hand of God. And to think, man, how blessed I am. But you know, the most significant moment in my life happened before I I met Mary, but I didn't know her. Is when somebody in that church sat down with me in a little wooden chair in a room upstairs at what's now Kirby Woods Baptist Church, sat me down in one of those little wooden church chairs and explained the gospel to me, and I trusted Christ as a 16-year-old. And that's all I knew. And he changed my life. 51 years ago, changed my life. And over time, I look back and I see how the difficult things that I went through growing up, he was preparing me to be a pastor one day. When you live with an alcoholic, abusive father and a mother who's mentally ill and there's nobody there to protect her but you and your brother, that's a hard thing to deal with. But God got me through it and he, he's used it in my life over and over again to reach out and love people. He introduced me to get with Mary and her family and that church. I, I met Christians People to this day that I'm very, very close to. God was setting. How long did he know about Randy? And he still made me. He still saved me. He still wanted to use me, and he knew me. I hope that's encouraging to you, because no matter who you are, God wants to use you. He's using Esther, who was really reluctant. She didn't want to do this. That's the beauty. I love the Bible. It's just honest. Mordecai didn't turn and cry out to God. Remember, this is Passover. We'll be celebrating the triumphal entry and Passover next Sunday, a week before the resurrection Sunday. That's what the time of year when this happens is Passover, the first month of the year. Mordecai didn't turn and call out to God. He went to Esther and said, you got to do something. When all the Jews should have been celebrating the exodus from Egypt and, and who their God was, they liked being in Persia. They were in the world and liked it. They were doing well. She's queen of Persia. They didn't call out to God. They just said, Esther, you've got to do this. So she made the right choice. I'm going to go in and do it, even though she really didn't want to. If I perish, I perish. God is in charge. Not Xerxes. God is in charge. So she touches the scepter. God gives grace to the humble. Verse 3, chapter 5. The king Xerxes said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So remember the context. She hasn't been summoned in 30 days. And you don't go before the king if you haven't been summoned. So for her to come to the door, dressed as the queen realizing that I, Xerxes, have not summoned her, realizing that this could be a death sentence on her. In other words, you wouldn't do that unless what? This must be really important. You don't risk your life if it's not important. So he says, what is it you want? The, when it says here the euphemism, I'll give you half the kingdom, it's basically a euphemism of courtesy. I'm going to give you what you want. It's not, think about in dollar and cent perspective. It was a, a 
oriental euphemism for, I want to be courteous to you. I want to extend grace and favor to you. What do you want? In other words, I'm not going to have you killed. You can relax. She's probably breathing now. It's okay. Now, what do you want? You wouldn't have come in here unsummoned unless there was something really important that you want. What is it? Verse 4, she's going to show she's been, she's gracious. Now you're going to see grateful. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I've prepared for you, for him, excuse me, for him. That's important, for Haman. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of of wine, the king said to Esther, What's your petition? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in sight of the king, she showed that she had, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So at this point, go back to verse 4. Xerxes says to her, what do you want? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Stop. Remember context and back up. Logic at that point, if we've got a committee together and we're voting, we're talking about it at this point, logic would say, Esther, he gave you a great opening. Now close the deal. Close the sale. Tell him you want Haman executed. Because Haman is going to execute you and all your people. That's the reason you're here. Mordecai sent you to plead the case. You're getting ready to plead the case? He said, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Okay, tell him. That's what logic would say. That's probably what we would have told her to do. As as a businessman or or somebody, as as a confidant, another, you know, one of her girlfriends, he said you can have whatever you want. What do you want? Would you like to live and let all your people live? Tell him that's what you want. He said he would do it. That's what logic would say. Instead, what does she do? She said, well, I really don't want to ask for anything today. I'm really grateful for your favor. I got a banquet for Haman, so I want him to come. But then I, let's just wait till tomorrow, and I got a banquet for Haman and you. And then I'll tell you what I want. So get the picture. A private banquet. Only ones that are going to be there are Esther, Xerxes, and Haman. The king of Persia, the queen of Persia, and the prime minister. Politics. Politics. Because what she's going to do is ask Xerxes to revoke a law. We've talked about this several times, but it's important. When a king of Persia made a law, it was what? The law of the Medes and the Persians, it was irrevocable. It could not be changed, even by the king. What's she about to ask him to do? Change the law. So she said, I want to have a private banquet, and then I'll tell you what I want. Because ultimately she's going to have to admit that she's a Jew, which means what? Destinous. It's going to cost Xerxes a lot of face, stature, Power and money. She's basically playing chess with Haman. See how she works it out. She's going to have to have wisdom 
is self-control, not vengeance. So she said, verse 4, I have prepared. Just a little mental picture for a moment. What has she been doing for three days? This is the third day. So what's she been doing for three days? Fasting, which means what? Not only is it three days, it's also not, she's not only not been eating, she's also not been drinking. If you go back and you read the context. No food, no drink for three days, and yet during that three days, what's she been doing? She's cooking, like Thanksgiving dinner that you have to prepare, because you got everybody coming over. At least the last part of it, she's been cooking. I have prepared. Verse 6, we looked at again. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? Shall be granted to you. What's your request? Half the kingdom it shall be. My petition and my request is this. Come to the banquet, which I will prepare, and I'll do as the king has said. I'll do whatever you want, Esther. What is it? Xerxes said, she asked for a delay. One day, I will prepare, and then I will do what the king said. Now, why the delay? Why didn't she just say, I want you to revoke that law. I want you to hang Haman. She's showing, you've got to understand the oriental custom. He's the king. As we said, you don't come before him. Basically, what she's showing is the due deference to him. She's not coming in demanding somebody be killed. She's showing him the deference as the king, pleasing humility before him, not to hurry him, just be relaxed, waiting his pleasure as the king. Time for Xerxes to get more facts about Haman, which he would be given, revealed to Xerxes, and time for Haman to show his real colors, his arrogance, who he is. So now briefly, look at verse 9, number 2 on your handout, chapter 5, verse 9, Haman's fury over all this. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. So Haman leaves the palace joyful and he's got a glad heart. Why? Because he's been invited to a private banquet but just between the king, the queen, and him. Nobody else has been invited because I am Haman. The second private banquet, I am so important. Both the king and the queen value me. The king has already agreed to do what I want him to do concerning the Jews. And now the queen's invited me to this private banquet with just us. Then he quickly gets angry. He quickly, verse 9, becomes, quote, filled with indignation. We talked about before how angry that it's like it's just seeping out of you. It's, he's so violently angry. He sees Mordecai, his hated enemy, sitting in the king's gate. That's where Mordecai always sat. That was his place of authority. Remember, there is a death sentence on his head, Mordecai's, and all the Jews. Yet what's Mordecai doing? Is he running and hiding and trying to get away? Haman, see, he's just sitting there like he always is, like nothing's going on. Sitting in his usual place as though there was no death sentence on him. Fearless. And to make it worse, verse 9, when I come by Haman, he doesn't stand or tremble. He's not showing me my proper respect because of who I am. Now look at its arrogance, verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, 
everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. His arrogance. Instead of doing anything to Mordecai, he let it go for the moment. And he goes home. He gets his wife and all his friends, close friends together, so he can do what? Brag, boast. Look at me. Look at my great riches. Look at how many children I have. Look at everything Xerxes has promoted me to. I'm above everybody, all the officials and the servants. Basically, what you're looking at here is a drunk narcissist. There's nothing he values more than himself. He's the man. Pride goes before fall, fall, the Bible says. Look on your handout again. God resists the proud. I've got some sheet music somebody found for me and gave to me. It's a song we used to joke about back in the 70s when the music was great. <clears throat> some of it. Mac Davis had a song. Some of you are going to already know what song I'm talking about. Mac Davis had a song that we used to sing because we just thought it was funny. Here were the lyrics of that song, part of them. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be an incredible man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. I'm doing the best I can. That's Haman. Look in the mirror and I see Man, I'm somebody. Oh, I told Mary I was going to sing this today. She said, no, you're not. Not if you plan on coming home. But I used to stand in front of the mirror. This is a joke with her. And I would stand in front of the mirror and sing that Mac Davis song. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I love to look at myself. I had hair back then, so it's a little different. Haman is absolutely the epitome of pride and arrogance and a narcissistic mindset. I am all that matters. If you study through scripture, why did Satan get tossed out of heaven? Because he said, I'm going to put my throne above God. I am. The essence of all sin is pride. It's me. I want us to bow our heads and I want us to close out our time together today sharing the Lord's Supper. We're going to have prayer together and then prepare you for sharing the Lord's Supper. Have the worship team lead us. Would you bow your heads? Father, we thank you that through the person of Jesus Christ, we can understand humility. He is. Philippians tells us he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because he loved us. Lord, Haman's the exact opposite, that arrogant, prideful, mindset that's simply me focused ego to the extreme that it's only me I'm all that matters so Lord I pray for us as believers that we would be humble before you have the mindset of Jesus Christ that we're servants that it's not about me that it's always about the other person what can I do to serve you share with you the person of Jesus Christ we thank you Father for humility, we thank you that you want us to be humble before you and you will give us grace, that you will resist our pride, our sin, it does not please you. So Lord, as we take, begin to even enter into a time celebrating the Lord's Supper, we would examine ourselves. 
Am I humble before God in every area of my life? Am I willing to give up the ego, the me, to let Christ reign? Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just share a couple of things with you and then have the worship team going to lead us in a song. At the end of the song, we'll take the elements together. You do not have to be a member of Christ's church to share the Lord's Supper with us. This is, if you're a Christian, this is what we do. Whether you're at home or you're here with us in the house, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as believers in Jesus Christ. His body, his flesh. So you have the elements in your hand. Just hang on to them. I want, as they're leading us in the song, you spend that time alone with the Lord examining yourself. At the end of the song, we'll take the elements together.